Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, my good pal Dale Stenberg and I are excited to talk to the one and only Dr. Carl Truman. Dr. Truman is Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. A historian by training, Dr. Truman is the author of the recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Before we get into talking about the book, let me just uh, assert that this will become a crucial text, I think, for, for grasping both the origins of the sexual revolution, but also for helping Christians ask the right questions to navigate wisely through it. The way Dr. Truman contextualizes the question is perfect, I think. Uh, if most of our grandfathers or great-grandfathers heard the phrase, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, much less than ridiculing it, it is very likely that they wouldn't even know what such a statement meant. Uh, it would perhaps have been as enigmatic to them as if someone now said, I'm a table trapped in a human consciousness. Uh, and yet the former statement, uh, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, strikes each of us modern people a bit differently. We intuitively grasp what it means. And this bespeaks a tremendous shift in the and the plausibility structures and the kind of background noise in our cultural environment. Uh, this book attempts to account for this shift going back to old intellectual foundations and moving through recent developments. Uh, it's a great virtue of this work, however, that it is not a work of historical nostalgia. Uh, but instead of just but instead of just praising each part of it, because I really could, I enjoyed it quite a bit. We'll just go ahead and let Dr. Truman speak for himself, and we'll draw some of these themes further uh, uh, during our time. So, first of all, Dr. Truman, it's so good to have you with us. Thanks for being here. Uh, maybe maybe the first thing you could do is just give a, a quick summary of the book's argument, and then Dale and I can perhaps expand and pull a couple of threads apart. Sure. Well, in some ways, well, first of all, let me say it's it's great to be on with you guys, and, and that introduction make me feel really good about myself. Uh, oh, I, need to, <laughs> I need to speak to you guys more often. So um, you could, frankly, you could have gone on for a few minutes. I, I wouldn't have objected. But, um, but no, seriously, the the book really it its origin it, it has a sort of twofold origin. One, uh, Rod Dreher and Justin Taylor wanted me to write a, an introduction to Philip Reef, the, the psychological sociologist, for want of a better term. And at the same time, I was very interested in, in how that phrase, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, had come to not just to make sense, but was emerging as something of a political imperative mm. to the point where if you deny the coherence of that sentence, you are identifying yourself as a bigot. And I wanted to know how that had come about. And as I was working on those those two things, it, it became clear to me that that what we call the sexual revolution, this, this great moment really from the 60s onwards where society's sexual mores and the way we think about sex has undergone a fundamental transformation. While often, particularly in, in Christian circles, we, we can tend to think of that as a pretty recent thing. Mm. Uh, you know, we've known that these behaviors have gone on time immemorial, but uh, they've suddenly sort of exploded onto the public scene in the last 50, 60 years. While we tend to think of that as a, 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 a sort of a sudden, a sudden explosion, it became increasingly obvious to me that actually it was deeply rooted in, in a transformation of, of, of what we understand the human self to be. Hmm. By, by self, I don't simply mean that basic self-consciousness that, that I assume every human being or, or most human beings have had uh, for as long as human beings have been around, that I understand I'm not you and you understand you're not me. We know that hmm. we're two separate self-consciousnesses. What I mean by the self is, is how we understand what it means to be a human being, how I understand my identity, how I understand uh, the way in which I am to find my purpose in life or my fulfillment. And it, it, as I was working on this, this bit on reef and then wrestling with this, how did this sentence come to make sense? I began to realize that actually you can't simply go back to the 60s. Right. The 60s themselves have to be set in, in a much broader context. And, and that was both uh, sort of depressing and reassuring at the same mm -hmm. time. It, it was depressing because as a Christian, I suddenly realized, wow, the problems 
Christianity faces in modern culture are much deeper rooted than one could ever have imagined. It's not just a case of overturning Roe versus Wade or getting the right appointment to the uh, the Supreme Court. We're really dealing here with an with an utterly transformed culture, the transformation of which has been happening for hundreds of years, and also encouraged by it on the grounds that, well, uh, in that case, it isn't that things are suddenly flying out of control. There right. is actually a, I would say, a twisted logic, but there is a logic to this process. Uh, and once we come to understand that logic, I think we're better able to respond to it from an informed perspective. So it was a strange experience, but that was essentially the, you know, the argument of the book in a nutshell is the sexual revolution is really the latest iteration of a massive revolution in the self that goes back three, 400 years. Yeah. I walked away from your book just blaming Rousseau for everything. <laughs> I, felt, I felt good about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. He, he was certainly, I mean, I, I actually Rousseau was, I, I struggle with Rousseau because on the one hand, he's a sort of hard guy to dislike. He writes well, he's funny. On the other hand, he was personally a bit of a monster and his, <laughs> his, his thought has proved truly cancerous, I think, to society as a whole. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that, that, that sort of brings up one of the questions because there's one of the things that I think is just really helpful about the book is that, uh, you know, I said at the, in the intro, it's not a work of historical nostalgia. And you're, most of what you're trying to do is just articulate these various intellectual actors in their own context. So you can sort of see like, what are the ideas? Why did they think they were correct about these things? Um, and some of them, there's points at which you can, you know, I think the reader's going to open it and say like, oh, that, that makes a little bit of sense. And then some of them you're going to read and be like, oh, that guy seems crazy. Uh, even though, though you're handling them with uh, the same level of a good historical objectivity. But, but, the, but the question I guess I would ask is, um, you know, there's a whole there's a whole audience of evangelicals who I think will approach material like this, and I and I think maybe the the mentality goes something like, I want to find out all the bad guys that are behind the modern sexual revolution, and I don't think that's quite. You tell me, you wrote it. I don't think that's quite what you're getting at because it seems like you know you read, for instance, the the chapter on the Romantics, and I start to think you know, there's some insight here as well. Like, it's not just that yeah. these are bad guys, there's insight in these guys. And in fact, even, even pastoral insight in some cases, like what's the role of the imagination, for instance, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in mediating the, the formation of the self. Um, and I wonder about this because again, so, you know, Rod Dreher wrote the forward to this, this conversation is so caught up, I think for evangelicals and a tension between sort of, how to read modernity itself. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it all just leading this direction? But another possibility is to ask the question, the, are some of these shifts things that are in part good and could be go other directions that don't lead to the sexual revolution? So I guess a, that's a very long-winded way of opening up the question. Do you think there's ways in which some of these figures actually um, give us insights that can actually be redeemed by the church uh, and avoid maybe some of the the ways this the, the, these lines of thinking were taken. Yeah, very much so. Uh, one of my, I wouldn't say dialogue partner, because I very much doubt that I'm really on the same level as him, but one of the, the interlocutors in my book is Charles Taylor. And I draw a lot of ideas from Charles Taylor. Mm. One thing that I also draw from Charles Taylor, which is sort of implicit, I don't really state it. One of the things that I found Charles Taylor very helpful on is that Taylor has always been somebody who tries, I won't say always to find the good in a position, mm. but he's always been somebody who sees exposition as, as being a prelude to any kind of subsequent critique, that it's important to understand and try to understand sympathetically what's going on. So as a broad principle, that's, that's how I try to approach these figures. And I would, I would then say that, that something like modernity or, or romanticism or Rousseau, the analogy is not perfect, but it's a little bit like technology. We all know that that technology brings great benefits. I, you know, I don't want to live in an era where there are no analgesics. I've got to have a tooth implant on Wednesday. I do not want a tooth implant without <laughs> the best and the latest technology being used. Sure. But we also know that 
that without technology, one could not have a Holocaust. One could not have an right. H-bomb. Right. And, I, and I think so often with the history of ideas, there's an analogy there. I mean, take Rousseau, for example. I, I've already said, you know, his, his thoughts like a cancer in modern society. Well, some aspects of his thought. And I would say the notion of dignity, for example. Yes. You know, Rousseau really grasps hold of the notion of, of universal human dignity. Now, he runs with that in ways that I think have unfortunate consequences in, in the modern era where individual human right. dignity has come to mean that everybody is able to say they can be whoever they want to be. On the other hand, dignity also means that, that every individual self-consciousness, if you like, has value. It has equal value. It's, it's the foundation of democracy. It's the foundation of the American experiment in, in many ways. So I would say Rousseau's a good example of somebody that I, I don't want to buy into his thought as a whole, but he's a definite improvement on that point, yeah. even over the reformers, certainly over the Middle Ages, but even over the reformers who had this very elitist, hierarchical, aristocratic notion of human nature in practice, you know, their theory, if you like, but was not carried through into practice. Rousseau is very significant there. The Romantics. Uh, I, I say to the students uh, that I teach, oh, the great thing about the Romantics is they realize that reason isn't enough. Hmm. And there's often a danger, even in Christian circles, that we can tend to think that doctrine, doctrine takes us to the heart of what Christianity really means. Now, I'm an Orthodox Presbyterian minister. Still, <laughs> you better think doctrine I, I, I'm <laughs> certainly not going to say doctrine doesn't matter. But... But the most important things in life in many ways, are the things you love. They're, they're the moments that have an impact on how you feel. And the romantics capture, capture something of that. So I would, I would want to respond and say, yeah, in every single one of the thinkers that I look at in this book, I would say, you know, there's something there. There's something there that, if, if, if it does nothing else, raises an important question. Even Judith Butler. Yeah, I, I'm not yeah. a huge Judith Butler fan, but yeah. she does challenge us to think about how much of how we think of the the male female binary, how much of that is cultural performance, right. and how much of it actually is is rooted in what it means to be a man, what it right. means intrinsically to be a woman. Mm. So I'd say all of these things are important, and it's it's helpful for evangelicals to to engage at that level. I think mm. it helps them understand the world better and hopefully helps them address the serious questions that the, the unbelieving world will pose to them. At, at yeah. Point. Yeah. You know, that was, um, <clears throat> it's good that you say that because I think that that's just the perfect answer to that question. And especially in the reform circles that um, sort of our friends exist in. Uh, it's us, just so you know. Right. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Uh, we, we, we tend to, um, we tend to embody a lot of this self, uh, this, we, we're not immune to being caught up in the philosophical trappings of the, of our forefathers. We can't just put it on the left. We can't just say, oh, it's only the LGBTQ advocates and, and, uh, their friends that are being influenced by, by this way of thinking in modernity. Christians actually do it too. And I noticed there's this sort of move towards a more, um, <clears throat> you know, agrarian lifestyle, sort of back to uh, self-sustaining homes and um, smaller economies, Rod Dreher's whole Benedict option with a sort of retreat uh, from the marketplace. Uh, there's a place for that in Christendom. I really believe that. Uh, but one of the things I think that you did very well at the beginning of the book was to say, listen, this isn't a lament, all right? I'm not, I'm not going to whine and cry that I find myself here at this particular moment in history. I want to objectively analyze what's going on and try to help us to think carefully about how we navigate the future. And one of the reasons I think that that's so important is because uh, there's no going back to the 16th century, we can't. We can't go back to this. And actually, I think there's a functional denial of God's providence in some reformed circles to in modernity. So we find ourselves in the modern age, 
And we lament about that. And we say, if we could just go back, if we could just go back to the good old days where people died in childbirth. Had implants without anesthetics. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And I I wonder, do you think that um, tying these two things together, the way that some uh, modern evangelicals have uh, been um, sort of drinking the poison of these of these thinkers in the past, mixing it with their reformed Christianity, and then presenting themselves as this uh, vessel of purity that's unaffected by the modern age, trying to save culture by pushing us to a time that we could all just you know live happily ever after. Do you think that in that is a sort of unconscious hatred of God's providence? Um, and what would you say to people that are moving in that direction without any charity towards those who would not be part of their project, I guess? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, I guess I wouldn't necessarily have framed it in terms of hatred of God's providence intuitively, but I, I see the point that you're getting at. And uh, I've been doing some work for a, for a couple of classes on Augustine's City of God. And of course, mm. he zeroes in on that passage in Jeremiah about seek the welfare of the city that in, in often in our parlance has come to mean a sort of urban ministry of some kind. Well, of course, in the, in the context of Jeremiah, he's really saying, accept the place where God has put you right. and be, be members of that society, because if that society does well, it will benefit you as well. Um, and I do think that, you know, that there is a certain, yeah, whether it's hatred of God's providence or whether it's nostalgia, uh, I'm, I, I'm not sure. Uh, hmm. hatred has a I, I guess it has such a sort of a judgmental kind of feel to it I would yeah. hesitate to say that what I would say is that often that kind of approach is uh, as you were pointing to to earlier in in what you were saying it it does have a, an interesting relationship to the modern world because so often those views of the past are are extremely eclectic and really sort of consumerist you know we go back to the 16th century and we pick out the bits we like yes and we leave behind the stuff we don't like the horrible anti-jewish sentiment in europe for example or the diseases uh, the medical treatments there is this 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 strange eclecticism it's one of the reasons why i've always been very skeptical of the it's not distinctively christian but of the the sort of the wendell berry kind of agrarian you know movements mm. i i grew up in a very rural agrarian part of the UK. And man, you know, the farmers I knew, it was hard, unromantic work. And they, you know, they just about made it each year. There was no romanticism there. I'd much rather be me here and now than sure. them uh, back then. So uh, I, I wonder if there's a, if there's also a, a strange consumerist dimension to that as well. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's interesting. Oh, Sorry. No, you carry on. Oh, I was just going to say, um, yeah, I, there, there's there's a sort of like a, a consumerist critique, and I think in a lot of conservative, a lot of conservative circles. But I guess you know one of the you mention in this book, in fact, that there's a uh, we're all expressive individualists now. Yes. Even you know, and sort of I even look at things like, and I think maybe this is part of what Steele's getting at. You look at things like the conservative confessionalist community, which has a lot of good things, and there's a lot of needed emphases there. I mean, you yourself have written on the need for creeds, and yet there's a there's a possibility perhaps that that can function as a sort of uh, not 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 from you, of course. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, I'm the one guy who isn't an expressive. Yeah, 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 the yeah, rest of you right. are the problem. Right. <laughs> but there's the possibility that that can function as kind of another, like just the way you're sort of saying with Vindal Berry, it can function as just sort of another escape hat. It can become another expressive individualism. Uh, you you might have picked up uh, Tara Burton's recent book, Strange Rights. On oh, a, yeah. Yeah. And she talks about like how we're all mix and matched, you know, we're all mixing and matching religion these days. And what's actually interesting in part is that you can even go to conservative kind of creedal affirming churches and start to see like, 
there just isn't anybody forcing you to be any particular way anymore. And so yeah. like you, you're almost inevitably, even when you're internalizing that kind of project, you're almost inevitably doing some kind of mixing and matching. It's a little, so it's difficult in fact, and this is why even in conservative circles, there's always, always massive fights going on about the boundaries of which mixes and matches are sort of outside the circle or inside the circle. But it's a, a sort of long-winded way of making the point that um, we don't really escape uh, the, the kind of existential conundra that arise you know, within an expressive individualist culture. You're almost forced to be that way. And you can choose the good within it, but it's, uh, but not, not as, not from any place that's not this. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I've often wondered in my own circles, you know, it's, it, uh, do, do, do doctrinal churches make cerebral people or are cerebral people attracted to doctrinal churches? You know, yeah. you can, you can, and do that in any kind of church tradition that that you have and a lot of the friends i have who converted to roman catholicism over the years it's been an aesthetic story as much as anything yes. else when when i asked them well how do you deal with mary well you know i'm coming to terms with that but it, huh. it's never it's never mary that attracted them to go to rome it was always they like the music they like the aesthetics that yes. kind of thing or so they're, and they're running from sort of evangelicalism yeah so it's always yeah. a contrast as well right you know, yeah like, yeah 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 lord i left your name on high wasn't good enough yeah right, right, <laughs> which right. is fine it's not you yeah know? <laughs> <laughs> you know one thing i think uh, was really profound about the book is um when you're talking about the self and the, how a, the modern man um, views the self. There's this sort of reversal wherein, uh, you know, the ancient world, it was a recognition of a deity, uh, not necessarily Yahweh, could have been the sun god or the harvest god or the moon god or the you know, whatever. Um, but there was first this sort of transcendent um, uh, dynamic that was established in the, in the psyche. And then there was where they found themselves in the community. And then there was like an internal uh, psychological analyses given those two things and then together those three those those three thoughts sort of formed what you thought of yourself of the self and in the modern age it seems like and this all ties in very nicely with what we're currently discussing but nowadays it's well first it's sort of uh, my internal psychological evaluation of the self and then I push that self-identity into the community and they must accept that and then I impose that identity onto my deity whatever that is and then that is my deity if it agrees with me if it doesn't I get rid of that deity and I make up another deity or something so Christians uh, what we're saying I think is Christians are not necessarily immune to this mm. um, and I wonder if we you mentioned in the book you know, we could be Presbyterians or Eastern Orthodox or Baptists. I noticed that you left Baptist last, brother, which I wasn't offended. I understand. <laughs> uh, but but it is it is a sort of like marketplace of religion where even Christians can exercise that reverse pattern of self-identity. And it seems like modern Christians then have to be intentional about making sure we're properly oriented. Um, do you think that that's going to be, well, number one, do, do you agree with that? And if you do, how do we intend, how do we move forward as the church um, and do this thing well? Yeah, it's a good question. First of all, yes, I do agree. And, and I think you know, Philip Reef puts this nicely when he says, you know, look at the therapy. If you want to know what a culture is about, look at the therapists. And if you look in the Middle Ages, the, the therapists are the priests and their job is to take you where you are and to bring you into conformity with the teachings of the church and with God and with the sacred order. Mm. Today, the therapists are the psychologists and the, the doctors and their right. job is to make you feel good about yourself and, and in some ways to, to protect you from society and if necessary, try to get society to change in order to protect and, and affirm you. So, yes, I agree with you. Uh, how do we move into the future? This is uh, this is very hard. I think there is an element here of there has to be 
self-discipline but of course as soon as you start talking about self-discipline you've kind of conceded the point that's right that that, that you're the sovereign one in this i I see no way of getting around that uh i i think that you know the the automobile is just devastating for the church and i love cars you know i'm a i'm a bit of a petrol head guy myself (laughs) but uh but the automobile is is devastating for the church Uh, sometimes in class when i talk to the students we uh, I taught a class on Charles Taylor, secular age, this semester. And, and as one of the examples, I, I drew on Scottish church discipline practices of the 17th century, where, you know, the first time you misbehave, they make you sit on a little bench under the pulpit, which is slightly too narrow to be comfortable on staring at the people. So you're symbolically under the word and the congregation can see you. Second offence, you have to stand outside the church door, so you're symbolically just outside the the congregation and everybody files in and out past you. Third offence, you know, they manacle you to the, you know, the the wall, the the, the outer ring wall of the church. And and I I said to students, you know, uh, how do you think they got away with that? Well, the answer is, of course, there's one church in the community the community is pretty geographically confined because transport isn't easy. You buck the church authorities. You might find that, that you starve to death. Yeah, you, yeah. you could have the, the black mark put on you and you're done. The church doesn't have that kind of power today. And, and I think sort of in some ways rightly doesn't have that kind of power. <laughs> Thank God for cars. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but on the backside of that is that doesn't come without cost. And, right. the cost. and the cost is the church ceases to be quite the community that historically it was and, and I think was intended to be uh, and becomes another. I, I, I like Yuval Levine's. Uh, book on institutions when he says you know in in times past institutions were places for formation you went there to be changed to be molded into something that was Mm. useful to the community you belong to now he says institutions are places for performance Mm. you go there to have a stage on which to perform and I think the church is is as vulnerable to that as anybody. Um, again, freedom of religion, the the the, yeah. the genius of America, freedom of religion. It's wonderful. Who wants to live in a country where you're persecuted for your religious choice? I don't. Yeah. The flip wonder- side of the flip side of that is it makes religion a marketplace, a yeah, consumer right. choice. Uh, yeah. You know, so as, as- and, and irreducibly so. Like we we get nervous about saying things like you know voluntary society, for instance, with respect yeah. to the church. And there's there's some reasons to avoid that language in certain uh, definitional contexts. And yet, in a sort of lived way, it's very hard to say that uh, you know one's participation in an individual church winds up being much different than that. And yeah. so I'm thinking here, like Anthony Giddens has this whole sort of notion of modernity as the um, uh, uh, as sort of like your circles of trust are sort of outsourced. They sort of go further and further away. So now you trust the expert and the whatever, uh, and it has to do and 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 it's it's um it's overlapping with a with a with an era of mobility, uh, especially the automobile. Uh, and so what you wind up having is non overlapping kind of immediate circles of trust. And so like you just said, it wasn't just that, you know, people all went to the same church back in the day. It's that you, the church and the marketplace and who you, all of those were overlapping. Yeah. Your family, frankly, your extended family were overlapping circles. And now they're kind of all elective circles. I go to yeah. work over here, my church community's over here and I can have communal and commercial life completely independent of this. And it winds up being that like, yeah, if you get in trouble at church, well, there's a bunch of other ones over there. And, you know, yeah. you see this, like, what do you, you know, what, what but this, this actually brings up, it's good we're talking about the church because this is such a, this is such a, uh, an, an important question in terms of thinking about how do we pastorally address this in the modern world. And in fact, one of the things you note at the end of the book is that, you know, given that we all exist irreducibly in this collection of pressures, both with its good effects and its challenging effects. Um, You've noted the church is just going to be crucial for uh, community, I think you actually said. Community is going to be crucial in the coming years. And the church is a big part of that. But, But of course, that could cash out, you know, the claim that sort of community is important, and that's true. Uh, and And then sort of equal sign the church. 
that could cash out in a lot of different ways because that could be in a lot of cases what you're seeing are uh, I think I see at least theologies of the institutional church where there's sort of almost a pendulum swing, sort of like there's loosey-goosey modernity, but then you can get almost cult-like sort of emphases yeah. on the local <laughs> church where it's like, oh, you're going to a different church? Well, you'll be giving into modern, you know, whatever. And then like people are trapped, you know, at a church where the pastor kind of sucks, you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so like, how do you, how would, how do you, but, but Bob, the, the Dutch tradition gives us this helpful language of, you know, the church is an organism and the church is an institution, you know? And so I wonder if, do you think those categories maybe help us think in terms of like, how does the church as a, how does the, the, the motif of community and the motif of church kind of come together to help us navigate this question? Does that distinction maybe help us? Yeah, I think in theory it does. And clearly there are those two dimensions to, to the church in the New Testament. What we, what we have in the book of Acts is very clearly a community of believers. They hold all things in common. There is that yep. organic dimension. And, but Paul also sets up... Uh, uh, whether hierarchy is the right word, I don't know. But in, in the pastoral epistles, you have him establishing you know, a form of sound words. It's, it's not just community. There's actually right. a, a creed involved here. And there's some kind of structure as well. We have elders, we have overseers. Right. There is a, there's an institutional dimension to it. Where I think that's problematic today, of course, is that our culture is very, very suspicious of certainly of traditional institutions. I think we do have institutional hierarchies. You talked about experts. How often have we heard in the last six months sentences beginning, the experts say, yeah, which yeah, aces right. every, you know, as soon as you begin a sentence with that, you, you, you've won the argument. Uh, and I think the problem we face today is the church has to be both. But the institutional dimension, because it is certainly a form of hierarchy of some kind, uh, naturally butts up against the, the values of, mm. of rather democratic, egalitarian, expressive individualism. And it's further exacerbated by the fact that church hierarchies, as you said, even in, in stating the question, you drew the analogy. You know, as soon as you started talking about strong church leadership, you moved to talking about it's like a cult. And that, yeah. really, that really captures the modern intuition about these things. Or if you're in a, a more traditional hierarchical church, your mind goes to child abuse, uh, political corruption, those kind of things. So I think in theory, yes, the church, the church needs those two concepts in practice. I think community is going to be an easier sell than hierarchy. One yeah. might almost say that, that the hierarchy needs to earn the trust of the community before it can truly fulfill its God-given function. So, so maybe, maybe one uh, clarifying remark there is that um, I think also in the Dutch tradition, though, the, 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 the organism metaphor can also be intra-institution. In other words, it's not just the aspect of the individual institution where we're having, um, you know, potluck or whatever, but it's that it's this right here. You know, we don't go to the same church, but we can fellowship in a sort of way. Yeah. And that's part of the kind of body of Christ extended throughout the world. And I wonder, is there a, is there a role, do you think, future forward to also emphasize just the importance of Christians finding and communing with one another where they find themselves sort of distributed through the body politic? Um, yeah, yeah, is that part of the pedagogy, in other words, is not, not denying, uh, which to me is like the, the, the institutional formal teaching church, if you will, is absolutely crucial moving forward. I mean, absolutely essential. But I wonder if that's another part of it is sort of like, do we undervalue Christians on our street? <laughs> you right. know, go to a different yeah. church. Is that part of the community that we need to be fostering as well? Yes, and I think that it's a kind of grassroots level local ecumenism is where that begins. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I've most appreciated from my connections with First Things and then my friendship with a guy like Rod Dreher is you come to realize that, that we have our churches and there are important differences between them that shouldn't be relativized. But there's also a communion of saints there, uh, of mm -hmm. people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and trust mm -hmm. in him for their salvation. And I think the way we can manifest that 
uh, is, you know, the old style ecumenism was top down. And, and to be honest, from my perspective, was very much marked by the how much of the important stuff can we relativize and square away? Um, right. It wasn't very successful. I, I find a more principled kind of ecumenism can take place at a grassroots local level where I have many friends now from other Christian traditions and we understand there are important differences between us but there's a mutual respect and a friendship and if that can be pursued at a local level I think that could have an impact on on communities I mean mm. Jesus himself says by this shall all men know that you're my disciples by the love you have for mm. each other yes, and I don't so. think he's talking there just about well the love you have for the Christians who happen to agree with you on everything right. yes. I think he's talking about something deeper yeah, and I'm so happy um, that you used principle. You you say ecumenicalism much differently than I do, and that will change when the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of your heart a little <laughs> harder, brother. Uh, but it, it is one of those things. I have a good friend of mine, Terrence Daughtery, that is always ask, asking me about how do we actually do this principled Catholicity thing? Um, and I think that's an important conversation and maybe one day we could have just a conversation about that, but I think that's part of it. So I think that's part of it. We are talking about community in the church. You know, I grew up in the church in America. Um, mom, mom has been a believer since I've been alive. Uh, the Lord has worked through my mother to save the entire family. Uh, it's just like, if I told you the story, it makes me, it makes me cry every time I think about it. Um, God just really used my mother. And I got to see a bunch of different churches because mom's theological convictions would change based on the latest book that came out. Uh, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't as if she was chasing books, trying to find something. It was that she trusted the experts in the church to filter correct doctrine to her. Um, and and there's a lot of people like that. But one thing I've noticed as I've sort of owned my faith is I'm 36 now. I'm still a young chap. Uh, but one, one of the things that I'm, I'm encountering at this point in my Christian life is that if we're going to say we need to have local strong local communities, this all goes back to the whole self-identification thing. Most people in the institution of the church are performative. They just are. Um, and I think that a lot of people have convinced themselves that they're not. So they've said, I'm not a hypocrite. I have to like do these things. And maybe if I just act it long enough, then I'll start to manifest the thing I want to be. Or there's this ethos that I need to situate myself in and become one of them if they're going to really accept me. But the problem with that is that misses the internal psychological analysis of yourself. You actually don't deal with your real sins. You're now dealing with how to satisfy um, what these people in your community desire to see in your life. And you could even start to put mental psychological pressure on yourself to perform that way. And if you don't, now you're sinning. Uh, so there's no like genuine wrestling with the darkness in your soul you just end up trying to fit into the community. So I wonder how do we, of course, one of the most clearest uh, answers to what I'm about to ask you, because uh, I'm sure as a good pastor, you'll answer this way, is to open oneself up to the common means of grace, the preached word, fellowship, the sacraments. Um, but on a, on a personal level, if you were talking with a group of your church members about how to form a genuine community that doesn't try to just perform for the sake of community, but really exist together as broken, shattered sinners that desperately need God's grace. How do we go about ripping down the walls of the modern, you know, sort of architecture we've built up? Yeah. That's a great question. You're asking me a lot of easy questions. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, I would, I would go to uh, Paul's qualifications for eldership. And what I, it, hmm. without going through, I say, what, what's, it, what's always interested me about Paul's qualifications for eldership is how bland they are. You know, he doesn't say, right. I've got to be good looking, great speaker. He, he's, you know, he says, you know, he's got to be a guy who doesn't get drunk. He's got, to, he's got to be a guy who's faithful to, if he's married, he's got to be faithful to his wife. Uh, he's got to be hospitable. 
uh, he's got to be a good reputation with those outside. Mm. Uh, I think I've always read Paul there as essentially saying, you know what the, what the elders do? Yeah, they we tend to focus in in our circles often on you know fit to teach, which we often interpret broadly, not necessarily meaning teach from the pulpit, but teach Sunday school, lead Bible study in home. And that's the one we zero in on. But that's only one of the qualifications that Paul lays out there. And they're very similar in some ways to the qualifications he lays out for, for deacons. And it seems to me that what Paul is saying there is, is the, the church leadership, the eldership and the diaconate, that's going to be critical for setting the tone in the church. Yeah. And these are people who they're going to model in their lives the way they relate to the church community and to the community outside. They've got to model in that precisely that which every Christian should aspire to. There's, yeah. when, when you look at the qualifications for eldership, other than the, the you know, able to teach, every single one of them is really something that, you know, he's not saying, you know, well, if you're not an elder, it's okay if you cheat on your wife or you go get drunk, and, you know, <laughs> get, get drunk once a week. Right, he's right. really not saying that. What do you think he's doing? I think he understands that that, uh, that embodied nature of the church means that hmm. pe people are going to look to the elders and the leadership to set the tone in the church. And you can often notice this when you, when you go to churches, the atmosphere in the church is often a function of the kind of people who are in leadership positions. Mm. If the, the guy in leadership is, is a hard-nosed, outspoken, show me a railing and I want to chain myself to it kind of guy, <laughs> those are the kind of people he attracts or maybe forms. Yes. So I would say the answer to your question it's, it is get the right people in leadership. Make sure yeah. that the, the, the figureheads of the church, if you like, reflect those qualities that Paul is talking about. And in some ways that goes back to the earlier question about you know, how do we combine institutes, uh, you know, hierarchy and community. Well, right. in some ways, if you've got the right guys in charge, it should be a whole lot easier to do that. Yeah. Um, so I wonder, you know, Dale, if the answer to the question is, yes, it's, it's ordinary means of grace. It's preaching the word and it's, it's administering the sacraments. But it's also just the, the ethos, the tone that the pastor and the elder set. And that's why Paul is so concerned about them being, I, I, I upset one of my elders once when I referred to the, I said, it's why Paul's so concerned about them being bland, boring guys. You know, they're the guys, <laughs> in, they're the guys in your neighborhood that you don't notice because they're just good neighbors. They just, right, right, you know, right, you know, right. they're not having wild parties or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, I, well, one could argue whether or not a good neighbor is one who has wild parties or one who doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually up for debate. Hey, I'm, I'm 53. I tell you, good neighbors, I, I, they're silent. You never hear. <laughs> that's them. right. That's, that's what I want. <laughs> uh, don't, don't, don't move next to Dale. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, it's, you know, one of the, a good friend of mine once, said to me, and I, I've never forgotten this, he said, Joe, you know, an elder, you know, in Presbyterian churches, or probably in Baptist churches, you have elder nomination season, right, you know, and, uh, and he, my friend said to me, Joe, do you want to know how to find a good elder? Find the person who's already doing the work of a good elder and make him an elder. <laughs> you yes. know, and I thought that's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great way yeah. to think about it. Yeah. And same with a deacon, you know, um, but speaking of examples, um, uh, uh, you know, toward the end of the book, you know, thinking of examples for us, you, you talk about the situation in the second century. You know, the, you know, maybe one parallel for us today is uh, here was the church existing against, uh, uh, you know, something analogous to a sort of pluralism. You know, you're a margin, you're increasing, we're increasingly a marginalized people, and the church was a marginal position there. Um, uh, uh, but, um, I guess the question I'd have is, would it be fair to say that one crucial difference, and I wonder how we tease this apart, and I'm thinking of, of Tom Holland's recent book, Dominion, here. Um, one difference is that the, the moral systems that we're up against are a kind of bastardized kind of version of Christian truth. You know, you know the last chapter of his Dominion is woke, and he sort of, you know, he makes the argument like none of wokeness makes any sense apart from sort of inter deeply internalized pieces of Christian culture. Yes. Um, 
so, so I, I wonder if it is, is it possible to overly reduce our, uh, I, I'm, I'm getting my question that I wrote down wrong, but I guess, does that modify that any bit? Like, is there a sense in which th there is a pluralism there? Uh, there is a, an analogy to our situation, but is there, I guess maybe one way of asking this is, is there more to work with? Uh, you know, in our situation than there was then. And that, yeah. that gets into a kind of a, 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 a sub-question that I'll just rope into this one, which is, um, is there the potential to kind of overly self-marginalize for Christians? You know, where it's like, oh, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, the lone desert prophets of our secular dimitude. And, uh, you know, we sort of romanticize our locust eating, yeah, you know, sort yeah. of truth telling role that we have now. What do you think, you know, how, how would we think through that? Yeah, well, I, I think to the first point, I mean, the great thing about saying there's an analogy, of course, is an analogy is a oh, yeah. direct equivalent. Yeah. So I say, oh, well, of course, it's just an analogy. I would say that, you know, what appeals to me about the second century analogy is that particularly the kind of criticisms that are made at the church now, uh, that we are immoral, for example, mm, okay. uh, that, that's, that's the key thing, that the church is and has got to get used to being on the edge of society rather than the center. And, and where I wanted to go with that in the last chapter, saying the interesting thing is the church did not adopt a a martial culture war approach right. but took a, a a more i think a more nuanced you know the greek apologists mm. sort of approach so i would say there are analogies but clearly some of the things you point to uh, are, are different uh, you know, is the situation today more hopeful than the second century i would say probably for a, for a lot of reasons one uh, christianity is growing gangbusters in parts of the world uh, we can be very you know, my narrative as i say at a number of points it's a very sort of western narrative i'm not trying to explain the situation in in russia or china yes, or right. sub-saharan africa this is an uh, american western european kind of narrative uh, i certainly think that on the global scale there's much to be encouraged about the problem is that it's statistics, you know, sitting in America and you hear about the growth of the church in China, you're just hearing statistics. You're not yeah. seeing people's lives transform before mm. you. You're seeing your churches withering away and, and that's tough. Uh, so I would say that that's certainly encouraging. And then I think your point about working with 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 a sort of bastardized uh, Christian morality is also a good one. Um, and again, go back to Rousseau and, and, and universal dignity. Most people out there have no idea that actually, you, you know, you require some sort of transcendent framework to argue for that. You know, yeah. Nietzsche's, what, what Taylor calls a sort of Nietzschean anti-humanism, uh, that's a hard creed to live by. Uh, and you, you don't meet many you know, uh, consistent Nietzschean anti-humanists. It's a very yeah. conflicted position. So I would say, yes, we have a, a moral register that we can talk about. We also have democratic processes. Uh, there's a lot of people have talked in the last few years about the crisis of democracy in the West. I'm not sure I see it in, in quite the way that some people do. Hmm. Uh, ironically, many of the people who were saying that seem to think that Donald Trump would never be thrown out of office. It seems that he's leaving office or, or <laughs> will probably leave office in January. So right. it does seem to me that our democratic institutions are, I think, stronger and more deeply seated in our culture. It's why I, I, my, you know, my friend Rod often makes comparisons to Weimar Germany, and I, and I see some similarities, but it strikes me that you know, Germany had never had a democratic tradition. And that yeah, made a yeah, big yeah. difference in the 1920s. Right. Yeah, uh, right. Whereas we have in America over 200 years of a pretty successful democratic. They've not been perfect. Slavery was a huge issue. But guess what? They were strong enough to sort slavery out in the, in the end. Yeah. Um, so I'm encouraged on that level. And I think at that, uh, therefore, Christians shouldn't accept a kind of dimitude. We we have the right to use those democratic processes to to make our voices heard so i would i would agree with you that there are that we are in a better situation if you like than than uh christians in the second century which should actually give us even more hope for cause for optimism because of course they're in a pretty parlous situation in the second century and they did huge things with that maybe there is there's there's more hope for us yeah yeah 
I appreciate your optimism, brother. I mean, it's hard to remain optimistic. I'm not an optimist. I, I think I'm hopeful. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. So hopeful. I, I, right. I would agree with Rod Dreher on that. There's a difference in optimism and hope. This is true. Yeah, and right. I'm very right. hopeful. I'm hopeful. Yes, yes, me too. Because our hope ultimately lies in uh, the historical uh, crucifixion of Christ and yeah. our resurrection. And so we, we know we're going to win in the end, even sure. if it doesn't happen yeah. in our lifetime. Sure. Well, and there's sure. the Luther, there's the, you know, Luther's great quote about like the reformation and you know, none of this, you're talking about Rousseau and dignity. I keep thinking, and you even mentioned this in here, like, where do I, where do I draw this narrative? You know, where do I, where do I find the origins of the sexual revolution? And there's a point in the book where you say something like, you know, I could just start with Adam, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know, but, uh, uh, yeah. but I'm going to start with Rousseau, yeah. but you know, you even identify like to even get the language of the self, you have to understand the reformation. You have to yeah. understand Augustine. You have to understand Paul. Paul you know? is, is key figure. In and and Remy, Remy Brog, I think, and some others, you know, pull, pull apart a, a lot of these threads, but you know, absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's just, you know, there's so many successes in a sense, that are, you know, that are instrumentalized, and maybe we could call that demonic in, in a sort of way, like they're instrumentalized in some, uh, in, in some uh, unfortunate ways. But right, yeah, there, there is some grounds for hope. And so I was thinking of, again, the, the Luther quote, sort of the Reformation happened while Luther and Melanchthon were drinking beer in a pub, you know, right? And that's, yeah, over, yeah. that's overstated a tad, you know, <laughs> you, know uh, you had to do a couple things maybe. Right. Uh, but there's a way in which, you know, Christians, um, uh, this is why Lewis, in some ways, I think is so influential. There's something about Christians that ought to be very jolly. You know, God is in control and yeah. you know, uh, I can go and love my neighbor and not feel like particularly threatened or have all of my eggs in the basket of who wins the election. Yeah. You know, we're, you know, uh, yeah, God, you know, yeah. And maybe that'll lead us into, I want to, we'll, we'll, we'll close it with this um, question, uh, Dr. Truman. So with the current sort of um, way that we dialogue, uh, conservative Christians with sort of like, let's say uh, left of center Christians, and then with just our uh, liberal opponents, our political opponents, precisely on the uh, questions of the LGBTQ uh, revolution. Um, and just that whole big pile of stuff. Perhaps um, some of us will immediately code our opponents, you know, the same way that we feel they do to us as Christians are immoral and they're bigots and they're close-minded, knuckle-dragging Neanderthals that believe in patriarchy and ugh, just the worst, right? But we can do that too. Uh, we can do that to our political opponents. And I think one of the great things about your book um, is that you're so objective in your analysis to say this is much more complicated than what, what we think it is. And so if nothing else, I think uh, one of the things I want all of our listeners to understand, and everybody should buy this book, it belongs on your bookshelf and you'll yep. reference it, I'm sure for years. Uh, but one of the things that we should understand is it's not as simple as the political pundits and the screeching, flapping heads on social media make it out to be. Yeah. Yeah. And if we're going to be serious um, about changing the dialogue, if we're going to be serious about engaging these questions, then we must be familiar with the historical development of some of this thought. And so I'm sure that uh, this will um, pique your pastoral uh, spidey senses. But what would you say to the church? How should we move forward in terms of... Uh, interacting with our liberal opponents, with the people that are in the LGBTQ sphere, people that are like being attracted to it within the church, people are very sympathetic to it in our families. What sort of posture should we take towards them? And yeah. how is that going to contribute to the success of being a Christian well in the modern world? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. And I, you know, one of the things that I, I remember at seminary when students would ask me, you know, what do you do in this pastoral situation? Well, the answer always is, I, I, 
every pastoral situation is unique, yeah, has its own history, et cetera, et cetera. But I would say there are some general principles I'd want to apply. First of all, uh, on the specific issue of, of the sexual revolution, I think it's important to make a fundamental distinction between what I would regard as the, the political lobby group slash ideology that undergirds stuff like LGBTQ things and the individual who has caught up with that is their particular temptation, their struggle, whatever. Uh, we, we need to make sure that when you're pastorally dealing with people, you're dealing with, with individuals. Um, and, and, and we beware of generalizing. Uh, I, I think that distinction is very important. There's a distinction between militant ideology and the individual who is genuinely wrestling with this as a problem. Yeah. Uh, secondly, I think we need to resist at all costs the, uh, the way that political culture is being polarized at the moment. I think one of the most frustrating things for me is that uh, the leadership class in America on both sides seems to have decided that in England, we would call a yobbish approach to things, a, a sort of a nasty, burn it to the ground, despise those who disagree with you approach is the way to go. I, I remember when Donald Trump made that speech, uh, State of the Nation speech, and I think Nancy Pelosi tore it up straight right. afterwards. I, I remember thinking, take party politics out of this. What an opportunity she missed. She could have taken the high ground. She could have behaved graciously and disarmingly at that point, but no, she decided simply to perpetuate the divisiveness that President Trump himself sort of represented to many people. Uh, I, I think it's important that Christians try to avoid the kind of uh, firebrand rhetoric that is so easy and so lazy and so problematic. Yeah. Um, and I, I've engaged in some of it myself as, me a, too. as a younger guy, and I regret it now. I think being a pastor made me acutely aware of, you know, slamming other Christians on your web page is not a particularly courageous thing to do when you have public school teachers in your congregation yeah. who face real challenges at work right. on these things. And it's and, always uh, called courage. It's always yes. labeled courage. Yeah. 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 It's, it yeah. takes no courage at all to have a relatively safe job and <laughs> stand for the truth. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that, that Christian leaders, whether local or national, need to dial down, dial down the rhetoric um, and, uh, and also understand how public actions have consequences. I've, I've generally avoid partly because I'm an OP guy, I generally avoid signing anything but the Westminster standards. Because <laughs> when you sign other things, there's always that, well, what's the politics behind them that I don't know about? Yeah. Right. But also it's received in, 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 in interesting ways. I was in dialogue just last week with a, a woman. She's a faithful reform believer, but she's intersex which is a biological condition. That's not psychological transit. That's, that's right. born with the, the, the sexual characteristics of both male and female. And that's a complicated, yeah. very complicated thing. And yet there are statements, well-known influential statements that have been made on, on LGBTQI stuff and signed by leading Christians. And, and this woman said to me, you know, that statement really alienated me. Uh, I, thankfully, I hadn't, I'm an OP guy. I hadn't signed it. So I was there. To say, <laughs> I, I never signed it. But it struck me as interesting that here's a woman who's had a tough life because of because of her bodily constitution, who found the the rather blunt instrument of, of a, effectively a petition be something that had become a real stumbling block to her. So I think Christian leaders need to think responsibly about how they, uh, uh, some will immediately say, well, Truman's gone soft. He's calling for compromise. That's not what I'm calling for at all. I'm calling for a wise approach to these things that recognizes that there are real human individuals who get damaged by foolish rhetoric coming from, from Christian leaders on things. We need to think more carefully, both about the content and about the style of Christian leadership in this country. Amen, brother. Yep. Yeah. Um, you just sound like Jesus. 
Uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, so so, so many compliments here. Right. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Truman. We appreciate you, brother. It's thank always you. a pleasure to chat. Um, Joe, we'll be back next week. Um, we, you, as always, you guys can find us over at davenantinstitute.org, and we will have this uh, episode posted hopefully Tuesday evening. Uh, you can also check us out on Facebook and uh, follow us uh, on there. And we also have our Facebook page if you guys want to get involved in the conversation. Uh, but this was truly a pleasure. This is one of my favorite ones so far. So yeah. thank you, Dr. Truman. We appreciate you, brother. Keep up the good work. Thanks for having me on. It's been a blast. All Thanks, right, guys. Joe, love you, brother. Love you too, man. Mm -hmm.